Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you, with analysis from University of Minnesota faculty experts. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Fifty years ago, U.S. Olympic sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists in a gesture of support for the Black Power movement during the presentation of their medals at the Summer Games in Mexico City. The protest cost both of them dearly. They were expelled from the Olympic Games and largely reviled by the American sporting press. Both men and their families received death threats. Next on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Sociology Department Chair and Professor Douglas Hartman draws parallels between the 1968 Olympic protest and the current controversy surrounding athletes who kneel during the national anthem. We'll also hear how political and social issues have historically impacted American sports. We sat down with Professor Hartman in his office at the U of M. Professor Hartman, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Such a pleasure to be with you. This NFL season, few players have continued to kneel during the national anthem, but the athlete who started the protest, Colin Kaepernick, is the face of a major Nike ad campaign whose slogan is, Believe in Something even if it means sacrificing everything. From your perspective, what is the significance and potential impact of this ad campaign? Well, we're diving right in, huh? Yes. (laughs) Uh, There's a couple things that are significant. One of the biggest is, I think, corporate America embracing activism and advocacy through sport and using it to promote their brands. We're in the middle of a tremendous uh, rebirth of athletes who are conscious and aware and using their visibility to speak to political and social issues, what we haven't seen since 1968. But that's almost always been at their own risk and kind of pushing against the mainstream culture and certainly not what advertisers or marketers uh, wanted of the people they were associated with. So the move that Colin Kaepernick and Nike have made is just unbelievably unprecedented. Probably the best example of that for me would be go back to the 1990s when Michael Jordan was the main pitch man for Nike and was known to have some social ideas about politics and race relations and explicitly was not marketing those, not publicizing those um, with the explanation that Republicans buy shoes too. That was not just Jordan, that was Nike, where their attitudes towards activism, politics, and protest was it was a negative for market purposes. So this is really the first moment that we see an athlete and a company working together in a much different way. And one that in the context of a larger context, going back to even the 1968 era, would have been unimaginable. Do you have any idea why there are fewer players kneeling this year in the NFL? What has the league done in response to the player protests? I actually think that the protests had started to die down, and maybe protest is even not quite the right word. I'd say demonstrations or gestures. Um, They had actually started to die down after 2016 season for a variety of reasons. They only reemerged last year and exploded last year, in my view, because of the kind of challenges and attacks by our president who was calling out the athletes even before they had done anything. And it was almost like daring them to step up. And I think that felt like something that many of them did want to respond to. So in a lot of ways, the protests from last season, I think, were motivated by political attacks. And it was just a response to those. There hasn't been as much of that right now. I think Trump's done a few times where he's kind of 
made some of the same gestures, criticizing players even before they protested, but less of that. And then the other big thing, I think the league has been very active and upfront about trying to make some concessions and develop some policies that spoke to some of the players' interests about social issues, including a multi-million dollar campaign to give money back to local communities, particularly inner city communities of color. I forget what the number is, 70, $80 million at the end of last season uh, dedicated by the NFL um, that spoke to the concerns of some of the most outspoken NFL players. And then that's not even to mention a big point of discussion, which I don't know a lot about behind the scenes, between the union and the owners kind of carving out what is the rights of the players, what does the collective bargaining agreement allow, what is the league's interest as a whole in concert with the players for these kind of demonstrations and statements. Colin Kaepernick played for the San Francisco 49ers. In 2016, he took a knee during the national anthem. He became a free agent and has since not been picked up by any other NFL franchise. What do we know about Kaepernick's lawsuit against the NFL, and what are the possible consequences for the league if the case is decided in favor of Kaepernick? I'm probably not the best person to comment on that, both because I'm not a legal scholar of this or a scholar of like the union agreement and players' agreements, but also because I don't really know what's, I, as many of us don't, even the experts on this don't know where the grievance process or lawsuit process is at. Let me say one thing before I get into specifics. I do think that's another reason why we haven't seen as much protest um, or demonstration at all is Kaepernick has been effectively blackballed out of the league. Yes. And even last year, I'd say that's why early in 2019, there wasn't many demonstrations because that was what happened. I mean, he already hadn't gotten signed last year. And I think every athlete knows whether it's in the NFL or the NBA, well, especially the NFL right now, almost anybody that's been vocal, it's been hard for them to stay in the league. And so I think that's kind of the shot across the bow. And nobody has really been very successful at challenging that. I'd even, I mean, if you go back 20 years and look at almost any of the high-profile professional athletes who've spoken out at all, um, not only did they not get endorsements, they were bounced out of the leagues pretty quickly or just not re-signed. Um, so I think that's really kind of what we're talking about here. I don't know that Kaepernick will be able to save his career, as it were, but I am very curious and interested to see how that turns out in terms of where the lines will be drawn for players to kind of be able to speak out on whatever kind of social issues that they have in mind. It's always hard with NFL players, or actually any professional athletes, so the careers are so short and they're, the kind of ways that we evaluate them are tough. So with him, it's going to be hard, not only because it was kind of unclear exactly what his value was at that moment, uh, but I mean, two or three years and you're past your prime. So it's even hard to imagine what that'll happen. But I think the outcome, the implications that'll be most important is kind of what it means for future athletes who speak out. Um, on that thing, the other thing I'd say is it's it's also really interesting how like the NBA is treating their politically, socially conscious, politically vocal athletes in a much different way than the NFL. And that's, that's interesting in terms of the dynamics of both of those leagues, their relationship to their players' unions, their status with the antitrust exemptions they have or they don't have. There's so many legal issues kind of bound up with all this. It's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. I, I, I'm hesitant to guess on that. I, I can't imagine it'll be much 
of a settlement that is good for Kaepernick himself. It'll be more about the future of advocate athletes. The NBA claims they encourage their players to use their First Amendment rights. Can you tell us about how other sports organizations besides the NFL have responded to athletes using their fame as a platform to express their politics? And that transcends several levels from high school sports to college sports to professional sports. Yeah, that's a really good question because I, I do think one of the most important things at the moment is how broad based the movement of athletic activism and advocacy is, um, not only in professional sports, but collegiate sports down into high schools and involving not only athletes of color, but athletes who are white, coaches, players who are white, men and women. It's an extremely broad-based uh, movement right now that I think athletic leaders across all these different levels and domains are really trying to figure out exactly how to relate to. I do think that there's a lot of attention to trying to help athletes understand what the opportunities they have are to speak out, to use their voices. But I think that varies. The NCAA, especially member conferences, have been very attentive behind the scenes to trying to figure out how to organize, regulate, or control student-athletes' voices. A lot of talk in the conferences about when to play the national anthem, whether players should be out on the field or not. Um, some want them not there. Others want to require them to be there. I think behind the scenes, a lot of individual mentoring and counseling with different teams about not necessarily to not say anything, but what's the right venue or moment. Um, high schools, I don't know that the high school associations are doing this per se, but I definitely have had conversations with coaches um, and parents about what's their kind of responsibilities on this or how can they even help assist students who have a message that they want to convey. So I think it's very much a, a thing that all different levels of athletic leadership are dealing with about where the lines are and how to either support and enable or try to kind of restrict and control. Uh, but make no mistake, people who are running the show in athletics are very aware and attentive of the level of consciousness and commitment on social issues that athletes across all these different levels are engaged in. We're talking with Douglas Hartman. He's a professor of sociology and the chair of that department at the University of Minnesota. NFL football is the most lucrative sport in the U.S., but last year the NFL's viewership declined by about 10%. Do you think the protests during the national anthem had anything to do with that drop in viewers? And do you think the NFL needs to be concerned about this continued decline? Well, I don't know if, if I think they need to be concerned, but I can tell you the NFL is concerned. I can also say I'm not convinced at all that the protests were the result of the decline. I haven't seen any good studies on that at all. Um, and the studies that kind of track people's opinions, I think there's just as many fans who are supportive of the athletes and say they're more likely to watch or a team or support an athlete as otherwise. I think those declines are, are explained by two other things. One is the general decline in television sports viewing in general. And that's resulting from changing viewing habits, lifestyles, cable and the demise of cable and how people consume all sorts of media. I think a good point that illustrates is a sport like NASCAR, which appeals to the demographic that supposedly is cutting the NFL and stopping to watch. NASCAR is down too, and probably a little bit more than the NFL in terms of viewership. So for me, that's far more about general trends in media consumption and viewership. The other thing I'd say, though, that is particularly the NFL, I think football in general, 
has a real problem in our society and our culture, um, stemming largely from issues about safety and health and highlighted in particular around concerns about concussions. I think this has driven a lot of football fans to not be as big a fans or to be more critical of their own support of this sport when they see so many of their heroes who at the end of their careers uh, really have serious health issues and even shortened life expectancy because of it. And I think that's reflected not only in our viewing habits, but in our participation habits. Football is still by far the largest participatory sport, at least for boys in the country, but that's going down. And parents aren't wanting their kids to play football, and it's not for economic reasons or others. It's because they see it as dangerous. They don't want to expose their kids to the risk of injuries and concussions. And that's a really serious, long-term, large concern for the NFL that's not only about their labor pool and who's going to play the sport, but about whether those concerns and the upsetness that many of us feel about seeing Um, what happens to kids that get concussions, whether that really impacts our ability to really view and enjoy the sport. So to me, those are by far the bigger drivers that explain the shifts and patterns in terms of viewership and consumption. Some have argued since Colin Kaepernick took a knee some two years ago that politics should be kept separate from sports. But is this opinion true to the history of American sports? Have politics and athletics remained separate from each other, or do they intersect on occasion? I'll start by saying two big things. One is I think we have a long history of believing sports and politics should be separate. That's a norm that isn't at all new, that goes back to the very origins of modern sport, of American sport, that you can find in all kinds of Western sport and in the Olympics. The idea that sports is somehow sacred and separate and has to be kind of staked off from the serious world of politics. The flip side of that is that most of our sporting practices and worlds have had politics infused with them from the very beginning. And nowadays, when we um, look at sports, we often don't even see that. The playing of the national anthem was created as a ritual for political reasons during wartime, to create national solidarity where it was thought to be lagging. Um, We have military flyovers. We have political things. They're about nations and states. Many of us forget to see it that way, either because it just seems so normal, taken for granted and typical, or because it is so common sense to us that we agree with that construction of the nation, or we feel included by those gestures. But when you talk to people who feel marginalized by that, or who are from other cultures and countries, say, why are you guys doing this stuff? It becomes really clear that there's political stuff whether we call it politics or not, that's infused with a lot of our rituals and meanings. The Olympics might be the best example of that. The Olympics historically got founded on the idea of sport and politics as separate, but all the key sets of rituals and ceremonies with the Olympic Games are around nationalism. They're around the celebration of national identities and boundaries. Sometimes those change. All of a sudden, that brings to light how national boundaries and identities are political phenomenon that are contested, that we fight over, that we go to war over, like the 1936 Nazi Olympics. That's why they were a big deal, because there was politics on display. There's politics always on display. We wish it weren't so. We want ideals to guard against that. But at the same time, the social world pushes its way in. Um, And that's part of what makes sports such a powerful venue, in my view, is what we 
don't want it to be there. We pretend like it's not, and it makes it all the more powerful of a political space. And that's some of the most powerful kind of politics. And this is uh, me channeling sociology into the, into the political science realm, is the political things that we don't even think are political anymore, the things we take for granted and believe in. And that's, to me, some of the most powerful political functions of sport are the kind of identities, boundaries, laws, norms that are getting constructed even as we think nothing's happening. So yeah, politics and sport always go together. We're always uncomfortable about it. And that's really what I think is happening right now is those lines, those blurry lines, those fuzzy lines, they're kind of put out there for us to see where kind of what's the things we are supposed to talk about? What aren't we supposed to talk about? What's considered protest? or activism, what's considered standing up just for the right, normal, good things, the real, the things that really matter to people that we all agree on, and where those lines are in the sports world. That, that's what we're talking about. When Dialogue Minnesota returns, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Sociology Department Chair and Professor Douglas Hartman. Now, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Sociology Department Chair and Professor Douglas Hartman from his campus office. You wrote a book about the 1968 protests by athletes at the Summer Olympics in Mexico City titled Race, Culture, and the Revolt of the Black Athlete, the 1968 Olympic protests and their aftermath. A very famous photo shows sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos with gloved fists raised in the air as they accept their medals. Tell us about this event. What were Smith and Carlos protesting and what consequences did the two athletes face in the aftermath of their protest? I'm really glad you asked about this because this is the era that everybody thinks back to is the only other era in American history where you really had activist athletes on the national stage. The gesture that you refer to is, is thought to be the spontaneous thing they just got up and did. Uh, really, it was much more complicated than that. Tommy Smith in particular was a member of a group of a number of athletes uh, led by a, a sociology professor in California named Harry Edwards who spent the entire year leading up to the games trying to organize a boycott of the U.S. Olympic team by African-American athletes. Their goal was to contribute to the ongoing struggle for racial equity in the United States, to the civil rights movement. They wanted to use the platform that they had as internationally famous athletes to contribute to the uh, movement for racial justice. Uh, it was really amazing because up until then, African-American athletes had always thought the best contribution they could make was by being star athletes, showing what was possible for members of their race, showing what was possible in terms of integration and solidarity across racial lines. Jack Jackie Robinson, Jesse Owens, Joe Lewis, they were civil rights leaders because they were great athletes, because they were exceptional leaders for the country in race relations. By the 1960s, athletes started to realize that wasn't enough. They were getting pressured to do more, partly to contribute to the movement, but also because they were starting to be used by people to say, well, we don't need to make so many social changes because this athletic success shows how far we've come. So that's what this movement grew out of. Um, their boycott failed. Um, it didn't have really widespread support. It was supported by a couple dozen really high-profile athletes. Lou Alcindor, who we, many of us know as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, he didn't play in the Olympics that summer. You know why? He was part of this group. So some individuals protested, but what isn't a big movement? Uh, but Tommy Smith and Carlos had joined him at a certain point in competition 
was always looking for ways to continue to show their solidarity with black America, to continue to contribute to the civil rights movement, the movement for racial justice. And so as they went into Mexico City, they were looking for ways to show this solidarity and expression. And, and there's a long, oh, a whole chapter on this in my book, but his wife bought him the gloves. And apparently after they won the medal, it was kind of a brainstorm came on Tommy of making this gesture happen. In a certain sense, then, it was spontaneous with respect to the anthem. It happened very quickly. It wasn't much noticed in the stadium at the moment, but it did get reported. Uh, Howard Cosell did an interview with Tommy Smith. Um, so people started noticing that what really happened was the IOC kicked them out. Uh, the IOC saw this as a violation of the separation of sport and politics, that they brought national political issues into the international stage of the most sacred moment of the ceremony. They weren't stripped of their medals, but they were kicked out of the Olympic Village, and the USOC sent them home. Smith and Carlos had a rough, long period in their lives um, um, because of this. They were seen as villains, as pariahs, as traitors when they got back home, except by a segment of American society who celebrated their protest. But they were really uh, outsiders and extremists in a lot of ways. Which is interesting because if you look at what they did, they didn't have a particular political agenda. All they were doing was calling attention to their race and to the, to the plight and experience of African Americans. Um, but that was seen in tremendously controversial ways at that time. So I've studied a lot about where that came from, obviously. Um, one of the other interesting side notes on that is how our memories of them has shifted. By the 1980s, um, we started seeing them as a country as heroes heroes of the civil rights movement. Like they were these great, courageous athletes who stood up for a cause. To me, it's a really great example of the kind of ironies of history, how things can shift and change, but also the shifting lines between politics and protest and sports and what's right and what's not right. Because back in the 60s, most Americans, especially white Americans, thought they were outlaws and traitors because they didn't agree with their message. By the 1980s and 90s, all of a sudden, as we were rethinking the meanings of the civil rights movement, we started to reconstitute, reinterpret, re-remember what that gesture was about and see that then not as an aspect of protest, but it's often now remembered as this moment where sports could lead the way uh, for social change in a progressive land. So it's very interesting history. What parallels do you see between Smith's and Carlos's protest 50 years ago and the situation Colin Kaepernick faces today? Well, there's some really obvious parallels. I think one of the biggest ones is that neither one was really interested mainly in issues of race and discrimination in sports. They were interested about race and racism and discrimination in society and were trying to use their prominence as athletes in the sports world to speak to larger social issues. That's important because, especially with 1968, but even so today, it's often thought that they're talking only about the sports world or that that's all they should talk about. Uh, so this is athletes who really are trying to transcend or get outside of the athlete box. Another thing that's important is the presence of other social movements that was supportive and encouraging of athletes to do this. Back in 1968, I don't think you could have imagined Tommy Smith and John Carlos without a civil rights movement and even a black power radicalism. They wouldn't have done it on their own. They had support and coalitions behind them, encouraging them, helping them to find a vision. Same thing with Colin Kaepernick. I don't think you can understand Kaepernick or the larger activism of black athletes without understanding Black Lives Matter and all the social movements in the country that we're so well aware of. Another parallel is the backlash. As much as 
like-minded political activists celebrated and supported the activism in the 60s and today you have an extreme backlash of people on the other side of things who see uh, athlete activism as betraying American patriotism, as dishonoring the country. So those are all parallels. The other thing I'd say, it's not just parallels though, it's connections. Colin Kaepernick um, has pretty close ties with that guy, Harry Edwards, who helped teach Smith and Carlos as a sociology teacher back in the 60s. He's one of the people who talked a lot with Colin Kaepernick when he was on the 49ers. Harry Edwards has been longtime advisor for the San Francisco 49ers and particularly on issues of race and athletes' rights. So there are literal connections between the activism of 50 years ago and the activism of today. And make no mistake, however much Kaepernick has learned from Edwards, Kaepernick himself has talked about the connections between the gestures and the reasons why he's doing this and what Smith and Carlos and their brethren did back in the 1960s. He sees his actions today, in other words, as part of a legacy and tradition that goes back at least to that 1960s period. As you mentioned earlier, President Trump has tweeted about NFL players and specific NBA players such as Stephen Curry and LeBron James. Is this president's public feud with certain American athletes unique or have other presidents and politicians disagreed with an athlete's political statements in the past? I'd say it's not only unique, it's unprecedented. Presidents have clearly disagreed with athletes at different moments, but rarely would speak on that, not in a public way. Even back in 1968, uh, when Tommy Smith and his uh, fellow teammates were trying to organize a boycott, this was during the 68 presidential campaign, Johnson didn't dare talk to them. What he did do was deputize his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, to reach out to them behind the scenes and try to talk them out of doing protest. Back in 1968, the politician who was the most critical was Ronald Reagan, who was then governor of California, who actually threatened to fire Harry Edwards from his uh, teaching position at San Jose State if he didn't call off the protests and stop talking to these students about doing um, all this activism. So politicians have spoken out a little bit, but really what's so unique here is that generally politicians talk about sports a lot, but they usually are trying to do this to create solidarity, to bring people together. Our president is doing this in ways to create division, polarization, to build to his base and build up the strength of the people who support him in opposition to others. When I look at presidential rhetoric and politics around sports, that's unbelievably different than how presidents have thought about politics through sports in the past. Again, we often forget how politicians and presidents in particular, they talk about sports all the time. It's actually pretty amazing, whether it was Nixon's ping pong diplomacy or Clinton playing golf or Obama with his NCAA bracket. or They all have done that, but they mostly have always done it to create this kind of patriotism and solidarity. It's really hard to find even isolated examples of individual acts where presidents kind of call out athletes specifically to divide and to play politics the way that the current administration is doing. What do you think will be the legacy of Kaepernick's Nike ad? Will it have the same impact in history as the Smith and Carlos photo? If it is, I mean, I think two of the areas where that's happening, one is this blurring of lines between sport and politics. That's not actually about the ad. It's about all of the activism right now. I think that's the norms that we have, the way we've tended to understand how sport and politics should go together. I think that's really in flux right now. 
Um, and I'd say that's not only though from the Kaepernick side, it's also from the side of like the way that our current president is using political discourse and sport together. Where I think the specific historic implications of the Kaepernick Nike ad is really going to be around how corporations and commerce use sports activism and politics to make money or not. That's what's really different right here. I think that's, we've never seen anybody try to do that. And whether that works or not will be very interesting to see. And it'll be interesting to see not only in terms of the corporate side and whether profit's to be had, but it'll also be how, if profit is to be had, what the implications of that will be for our historic norms and understandings about trying to keep sport and politics separate. Because what's happening now is it's not just sport and politics lines we're talking about, it's sports and politics and the market. I'm making no predictions, except that this is a significant moment for potentially reshaping how we understand the relationships of those things. Douglas Hartman is a professor of sociology and the chair of that department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Hartman, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Pleasure as always. Thanks for doing it. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Next week, a look at the bitter partisan battle over the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Will the fallout cast a shadow on our political and judicial institutions? And what impact might there be on the midterm elections? I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening to Dialogue Minnesota. We'll see you next time.